And so we have decided together to study the 12 base teachings. And before we begin to examine the 12 base teachings, because they depict the core of the true Christian faith teaching that Apostle Peter calls simply a commandment. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Apostle Peter calls the teaching of Jesus Christ simply a commandment, a decree. I would like to stress that we will examine this commandment only in that format and those boundaries that God and the measure of our faith allow us to. Just as David in his songs of prayer says that the commandment of the Lord is exalted over the complexity of all perfections and therefore has no measure or sum. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Psalms 119 verse 96. Here he says in the, with the word commandment, all he includes all of the legislation of God. Apostle John calls the 12 base teachings the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. And Apostle Paul calls the Christian faith teaching the great mystery of godliness or the elementary doctrine of Christ, meaning first fruits. Jesus himself called his teaching the narrow gate and narrow path. The prophet Jeremiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, called this teaching the ancient path of goodness. Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. So if you, if you follow this old way of good, or this good way, ancient path of goodness, you will find rest for your souls. And again, they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you, saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. The nations and congregation, God is turning not to the world, but to his church. This is... Uh, there was a part of people who said, we're not going to listen to it, we will not walk in it. And he turns to all of his children as a whole, all of his congregation, and he tells them what will be with these people. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words, and as for my law, they have rejected it. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16 through 19. But they thought they were serving God. They said that we're not going to walk in it because they had their own understanding of the gospel. And we are going to call this series of sermons the Return to the Ancient Path of Goodness. Return to the base teachings is Return to the Ancient Path of Goodness. And according to this prophetic address by God to His people, the ancient path of goodness that God calls His people upon is supposed to bring them to rest, or to the Sabbath where God abides. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it, and find rest, the Sabbath, for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. You will enter into my Sabbath, he says, but they said, we will not walk in it. It becomes clear that the law of Moses could not be the ancient path of goodness because at its core, it was in the shadows of its legislation, although it was an image of the ancient paths of goodness. In the literal sense, it was not called to and could not bring to rest people or to the Sabbath in which God abided. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 8 through 11, Paul says, For if Joshua had given them rest, if Joshua would have led them through the ancient path of goodness, he would have brought them to rest. But he did not lead them through the ancient path of goodness. He said, if he would have given them rest, and it could be found only through the ancient path of goodness, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, or rather the opportunity to enter into rest. There remains an opportunity to enter, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So basically, what we are going to study together must bring us to rest. The 12 base teachings that we are talking about, they are called to bring us to rest, if we are clothed in these teachings. Third, the guides to the ancient paths of goodness, as we see here through the prophecy of Jeremiah, were called to be those watchmen who were placed by God at the sound of the trumpet, 
given to them by God, which implied anointing of the Holy Spirit on the authority to grasp the ancient path of goodness in his legislation. I set watchmen over you, saying, Pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not pay attention. However, the commanding watchman and the fulfiller of the ancient path of goodness expressed in the Sabbath, God had placed his Son, Jesus Christ, in the dignity of the Son of Man, and his teaching is the ancient path of goodness. John 5.39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is that they bear witness about me. And when he said this, the Gospels were not yet written. Back then, there were only the laws, prophets, prophecies, psalms. The, in his time, the first watchman of the ancient path of goodness became Adam. Then this baton was accepted by his son, Seth, who had taken the place of Abel. And we're, we're talking about watchmen. We are talking about those people with whom God speaks, those people who can carry this teaching, and those people who know how to build an altar to the Lord, what kind of sacrifice to bring, when to bring it. Then was Enos, during which time the people received the right to call on God. From Enos, the baton of watchmen of the ancient path of goodness was passed on to Kenan, and from Kenan to Mahalil, and next to Jared, and finally the seventh watchman of the ancient path of goodness was Enoch, of whom is written, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Meaning, to walk before God is possible only by knowing the ancient path of goodness. If we don't know the ancient path of goodness, we're not going to be able to walk before God. We will only think that we're walking before him. But because Enoch walked with God, that's why he was raptured. Because he knew the ancient path of goodness, and he was a watchman of this path. He told people about this path. After the rapture of Enoch, the watchman of the ancient paths of goodness was Methuselah, his son, and then the baton was passed on to Lamech. After the death of Lamech, Noah became the watchman of the ancient path of goodness. After the death of Noah, the baton of watchman of the ancient paths of goodness was passed on to Shem. He had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, but it went on to Shem. The twelfth watchman of this crowned group was Abraham who through a unique faith was called a friend of God and the father of many nations or the father of all believers until the end of time. Because of this, the ancient path of goodness is called the path of Abraham's faith, while the commander and fulfiller of Abraham's faith is a son of man, Jesus Christ, dignified as the son of man. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we're talking about the watchmen of good, the cloud of witnesses are these watchmen, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus with patience, because devil will always show us, where are these promises? Why aren't they being fulfilled? They are going to be fulfilled. In the time that is established by God. That's why we do need this endurance, this patience. Furthermore, it says, Let us turn to the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Furthermore, the cloud of witnesses are the watchmen of the ancient paths of goodness, who answer the conditions of God's orders, and who are the dignified partakers that make up the number 12. The number 12 is a symbol. There are more... But first, God places and establishes 12, and then in this number, there are also other watchmen. And so, to be clothed in the dignity of a watchman of God, and to become a part of the order that is represented in the number 12, we are called to follow these watchmen just as they followed Christ, and to imitate them just as they imitated Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk accordingly to the example you have in us. These are watchmen of good. To become a watchman of the ancient paths of goodness, it is necessary to possess a prophetic spirit and to be kings and priests to God. And to accept this dignity, it is necessary to be free from the curses of the law of Moses, which is the watchman of each person who has not yet lost their soul in the death of Christ. Don't think that he disappeared somewhere. Yes, Christ came, but he came only for those 
who are able to be freed from this watchman, to help them be free from it. Those who are in the state of the carnal nature, their watchman is the law of Moses. Galatians chapter 3 verses 13 through 14 says, Christ redeemed us, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham, so Abraham from the pleiad of the first twelve watchmen, through Christ Jesus, might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It's a very important here. We're talking about to receive this promised spirit through faith, we can through the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham, like the ancient path of goodness, is represented in righteousness before God that is independent from the law of Moses because it is given in the faith of the redeeming act of Jesus Christ. And to have faith in the redemption of Jesus Christ, it is important to distinguish his teaching from all kinds of various religious fakes who call themselves Christians, but lack the core teaching of the ancient path of goodness that is called to make us a part of God's essence. And for this purpose, it is important to be taught how to build an altar to God, what kind of sacrifice, and in what order the sacrifice must be brought. And then it is necessary to be dedicated and sanctified by the Holy Spirit for the right to enter God's presence. The ancient path of goodness and the subject of the teaching of redemption, whose watchmen were twelve people, beginning from Adam and ending with Abraham, is identified in the Bible as a certain order that has been anciently present in the light of each day that contains twelve hours. Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This was the day that is comprised of twelve hours in the day. The sun was not present yet. The moon and the stars were not were not existent. But there was day and night, and according to their time, they uh, specifically a day was twelve hours, and the night was twelve hours. In the little sense of the word, when the sun appears, you will see this very rarely, but the night will be longer, the day less, and, and vice, vice versa. But here Christ talked about something else. John 11, verses 9 through 10. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Obviously, the words of Jesus were not talking about the ordinary twelve hours in a day, but rather those hours that will contain the teaching of redemption, fulfilled by Christ, which will be presented as God's judgment. And depending on our relationship to these hours, this judgment of God through light that contains the teaching of redemption will judge some and justify others so they could have trust in God and have hope in his arm. Isaiah chapter 51 and verses 4 through 5 says, Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out for me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My, the justice is light. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Interesting. Why only the coastlands will hope in him? What about the rest of the earth? There's not many coastlands that exist. Only that category of people who has humbled themselves before the word of God and who has inclined their ear to hearing the preached word about the kingdom of heaven can be this coastland, because of which uh, they've found in their heart trust in God. And so the order of the day in 12 hours for the category of people who are coastlands will be salvation. This is a congregation of people. Only for them this will be salvation. Because the image of a coastland is a symbol of sanctification, which shows a separation from other people who inhabit the earth. This is sanctification. Coastland meaning separated from the earth. Water surrounds a coastland. 
when Elijah had brought a sacrifice upon the mountain or upon the hill, he had covered, he had dug a hole and he had uh, dug a pit around the hill. He had separated himself from everybody, and then the fire of the Lord descended. He needed holiness, separation, and he says, The coastlands will wait on me. Those who have been sanctified. Talking about the price of sanctification, which is called to separate us from other people who do not understand and oppose the order of twelve hours, Apostle John wrote, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. I would like if anyone hears me today from any other church, from any other churches that they ask their preachers what is the teaching of Christ who came in the flesh why came in the flesh how do we define it give us a definition so that we can know where we are going so it's necessary for us to have an accurate scale and a measuring stick to determine whether or not the teaching we accept contains the order that is represented in the 12 hours of the day. And this scale and this measuring stick is the ancient path of goodness in the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. Recently, someone who walked away from the ancient path of goodness wrote my wife a text message saying, By the Lord's mercy, we have not vanished. Only these kind of defectors and apparently unaware people because the time uh, has not yet come for God to pay them a visit and God is watching them until their day of slaughter. That's why they have not vanished yet. Everything, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble, Proverbs 16.4. But he thinks that he hasn't vanished according to the mercy of God and he's walking in the correct direction because he's not vanished. He thinks he's walking in the correct direction. But Apostle Peter says, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. God is, for now, keeping the earth as it is. If he would not, he would have destroyed it a long time ago. Because there are many who live on the earth who use the political structures for their own, uh, for their own purposes, creating wars to nuclear bombs to destroy the whole world. Therefore, don't be afraid of nuclear bombs. The earth is not going to be destroyed by people, but by God. And God is keeping these people for now so that he can judge them on this very same earth. We must know that if we do not accept the teaching that abides by the order that is signified in the 12 hours of the day, then we accept the teaching of the Antichrist who outwardly looks no different than the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, but inwardly lacks this marvelous order of the day. Beloved, Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-3, through 3, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Even then, during the times of the apostles, the first church... Um, even then there were false prophets. Imagine if they were existent then, imagine how many there are today. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. The ancient path of goodness in the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh is the teaching of the kingdom of heaven. Romans chapter 14, verses 17 through 18, Apostle Paul writes, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The definition of uh, the kingdom of heaven is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. 
Based on this definition, to follow the kingdom of heaven in the format of the ancient path of goodness means to be acceptable to God. It says, He is acceptable to God who gains this kingdom inside of him. Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit are derivatives of righteousness in which we are called to be clothed in the Holy Spirit. And based on the semantic meaning, it is noted that the kingdom of heaven has ties to the spirit of man and to his character. And so we must search for the kingdom of heaven and righteousness, which has no relation to material and corruptible values. Basically, the teaching of righteousness gained through faith in the format of the kingdom of heaven or the ancient path of goodness is contained in the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. In one of his Proverbs about the kingdom of heaven depicted in God's righteousness, Jesus presented conditions on the foundation of which a person can discover the ancient path of goodness to gain righteousness after which he can practice righteousness. And this condition, according to the words of Christ, is the finding and the entering through the narrow gate and narrow path leading to eternal life. From this it follows that the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh is located in the nature and functions of the narrow gates and narrow path. Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 through 14. This is said throughout all of the gospel. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. When here it says, not many find it, it means that they, they search for it, but not many find it. We must note right away one circumstance, that repentance or turning to God in itself is not entering through the narrow gate. The opportunity to enter, enter through the narrow gate is possible only after repentance and turning to God. Because entering the narrow gate is knowing the truth that is located in the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. John chapter 8 verses 31 through 32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, and there were many Jews who had believed in him, but look what he says to them. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Meaning, his teaching was supposed to make them free. We have noted many times before that in this proverb, the many who walk the wide path and the few who walk the narrow path are believers who have received salvation through grace. They are all those people who had received salvation according to the gift of grace. Each of these categories believes that they are walking on the path that is leading them to eternal life in the kingdom of heaven or into the resurrection of life that abides in the kingdom of heaven. However, we see in the various Proverbs that before entering the narrow gate leading to eternal life and resurrection, the path to these gates must be searched for. And to discover resurrection of life in these narrow gates, it is necessary not only to enter these gates, but to also become familiar with what the Bible depicts is the narrow gate and the wide gate, and what characteristics the Bible gives these gates that are opposite of one another. Basically, the narrow gate is directly associated with the kingdom of heaven, which is possible to enter through under one condition, if diligence and effort are used to enter. Luke chapter 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Salvation, a person does not earn, he receives it as a gift, but if he does not apply energy to enter into the kingdom of heaven, he will lose the salvation. To demonstrate effort or energy is to strive, compete, fight, wrestle, use resources and energy, dedicate certain time, diligently examine the word, and prepare our heart for hearing the gospel of the kingdom. And so, according to the words of Christ in the proverb about the narrow gate and narrow path, many who call themselves believers will not be able to enter the narrow gate and will lose their salvation, not even realizing that they have lost it, because of a few reasons. First, they will not be able to discover their narrow gate because they do not know what it looks like and what functions and characteristics it is given in the Bible. 
Second, because they will accept the wide gate as the narrow and the broad path as the narrow one. Third, because they will not know what price they must pay in order to discover the narrow gate and therefore will not receive the right to enter by it. Fourth, because they will not know the results they must test themselves with to know which gate have I entered and which path am I following. Fifth, because they will not know that to find the narrow gate with physical eyes and the intellect is impossible. Sixth, to achieve this goal, it is necessary to have a pure and open eye of the heart, as well as a circumcised ear of the heart, able to hear. And so, who or what did Christ imply in his proverb about the narrow gate and the narrow path? I assume that the category of the many and the category of the few perfectly understand that the narrow gate and narrow path leading them to eternal life or into the fold of the Heavenly Father is Christ, who said of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John chapter 14, verse 6. And when a person reads this, he says, that's it. Okay, I know that the narrow gate and the narrow path is Christ. But this is just a, a slogan, a formula. Uh, if we don't know, if we're being led by these slogans, with these same slogans, we're going to head to perdition. Why did Christ call himself the narrow gate and the narrow path? And what did he mean by this definition? According to Christ's ascertainment, not many know of this proverb. And to understand why Jesus called himself a narrow gate and narrow path, let's turn to another proverb. It's going to enlighten this other parable that we just read about, or proverb that we read about. John chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So, meaning we must go in and then we must go out in order to find the pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. A pasture is a grassland, paddock, or a meadow with quality grass for sheep. To find this lush, lush pasture means to find the narrow path, which implies that the place of gathering of saints, where the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, is taught for the perfection of spiritual growth and life in the Spirit. The phrase, go in and out, is a symbol of entering the narrow gate and going out of the narrow gate onto the narrow path, in the subject of a pasture. This image is illustrated well in entering the Ark of Salvation and then going out of this Ark. If Noah would not have come out of the Ark of Salvation, then the Ark of Salvation would have been more of a tragic death for him than the waters of the flood would have been. It's unfortunate to be saved, to have salvation, and to still perish. Okay, the world did not have it. It lies in evil. And it perishes. But those who knew it, who had received salvation, have entered the Ark of Salvation, but they perished. Why? Because they did not go out of it. And if they don't go out of the Ark, inside the Ark, there is no pasture there. There are just certain provisions that are there so that they can endure the storm that will pass, the judgment that will pass. So the door of the sheep's yard, which represents the church of Jesus Christ and the congregation of saints, is a son of God as the head of the house of God, the narrow gate, and includes the porch of the house of God in the face of God's delegated representative, who is also part of the door. So when we enter into the narrow gates, there is the threshold or the porch. And again, I repeat, this porch is the acknowledgement of God's order. When we acknowledge the delegate representative, a prince comes, the door opens, sanctuary. The prince is then allowed to go into the sanctuary, into the open door, to bow down to the Lord by the open doors. When the doors were opened, he saw what was inside of the sanctuary. The rest of the people didn't have the right to draw near to the doors. They stood afar off, and when the prince had bowed on the Sabbath during the time of rest, the people also bowed. 
but then the priest would come and he would take the offerings of the prince and he would carry them further in. And we have talked about how this priest is our reborn spirit and our prince is our renewed mind that is obedient to our heart. The narrow gate or the ancient path of goodness and the teaching of Christ is the path on which the light spreads. You were the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So basically, if a person has not entered through the narrow gates, he cannot be a light. If he does not build the Ark of Salvation, we build it all together, each of us individually. We build this Ark of Salvation and to enter it, to endure God's judgment, to be sanctified. Because we need to be separated from these people in a way that we're sanctified. They must all die to us in the waters of the flood. And then we must go out onto this pasture. The wide gate and the broad path are the gates of death and a path to the gate of the deep darkness of death. This is what God says to Job when God had judged, not with Job, not Job, but when he had enlightened him. Basically, all of these illnesses that had come upon Job, and at this time he was he was redeemed and sanctified. And he be, continued to say, I believe that my Redeemer lives and that he is going to restore me and I am going to see the Lord. He continued to say these things. And he was basically found in this ark that we're talking about. And God had done something with him. He had enlightened him. How? So that he can be sanctified, separated fully. And he asks him a question. Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? So practically, before us, the gates of deep darkness, the gates of death must be opened. Christ had it overcome, but in order for us to enter into this victory, we must see these gates to see what death is and overcome it. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness? that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home. This is referring to God's judgments. He says, do you know how I practice my judgments? How I enlighten? And he gave Job these answers. To enter the narrow gates is to accept Jesus Christ into your heart in the face of the Holy Spirit and to be placed in Christ Jesus. From this we know that until our flesh and blood are abolished, we will not only be unable to enter the narrow gate, we will also not be able to find it until we lose our soul. We can search for it however long we want or however we want. I can speak of it, but you can't understand it with your intellect. It's necessary for the flesh and blood to be abolished because the word narrow means impassable, unnoticed, and uncomfortable for the entrance of the flesh and blood. The wide gate is a false teaching of Christ and a false representation of Christ. The broad path that many walk on are separate people and separate congregations that mix human with godliness. But to delimit one gate from the other and one path from the other, we must have concise criteria that will depict the narrow gate leading to eternal life or resurrection of life and the wide gate leading to eternal suffering or the resurrection of judgment. If we think about it as humans, then we, being slaves to sin and the lusts of our bodies, receive freedom from sin through Jesus and obtain authority over our lusts. It would be logical for Jesus to call himself the wide gate and the broad path because we have now been freed from sin, right? However, contrary to our human logic, he called freedom from sin and lust the narrow gate and narrow path. The thing is that the original phrase narrow gate contains the following meaning. First, it is impossible to walk through the gate in our own clothing, our own righteousness. Second, it is impossible to carry our own burdens through the gate in the subject of our personal interests, which are located in the inheritance of the sinful life of our forefathers.
So there are spiritual fathers, religious, who had passed along not garments of righteousness, but the ones that are Adam had been clothed in, the fig leaves, justification itself. Those congregations who practice or who do righteousness to become righteous, they will inherit perdition. But those churches who teach who teach how to become holy will perish because to practice righteousness, we we must be uh, righteous. To practice justification, we must be righteous. And for this, it's necessary to accept how to receive righteousness as a gift so that we can practice righteousness, how to become holy so then we can hallow God. And all of this is a gift and it's impossible to achieve ourselves. We must be born holy. We must be born righteous. And above all else, third, he who walks through the narrow gate must comply with the nature and properties of the narrow gate. From this we know that in order to find the ancient path of goodness and the subject of the narrow gate, it is necessary to first have a pure eye of the heart. If your eye is pure, then your whole body will be pure. And this is the clean conscience of a person. The eye of the heart is his conscience. And a circumcised ear of the heart and the subject of humility in order to distinguish the narrow gate and narrow path from the wide gate and broad path. We need humility. Humility to be a student. Second, for the right to enter the narrow gate, it's necessary to throw our clothes off ourselves in the subject of our deadly acts. Rather, to strip naked and be clothed in new clothes given by God. Third, for the right to enter the narrow gate, it's necessary to consciously give up our burdens all inheritance, and everything that does not comply with the nature of the narrow gate. Fourth, for the right to enter the narrow gate, it's necessary to place the nature of the narrow gate into your heart and to allow the Holy Spirit to place you into the atmosphere of the narrow gate. We ourselves will not be enter, will not be able to enter there on our own. The Holy Spirit must lead us. And for this, it's necessary to accept the Holy Spirit and to agree to endure a baptism, meaning separation, immersion, We're not able to do this on our own. And furthermore, uh, the watchmen can't do this on their own either. Fifth, we'll talk about this later on. But fifth, to be on the narrow path, it's necessary to always be vigilant and to guard God's commandments. The first sign that we have entered a wide gate and are walking a broad path is that we will have unfaithful goals. If our goal is a cloudless and secure life in the flesh, and popularity through evangelism that we do not understand and were not called to fulfill, then we will be exploiting spiritual principles for the achievement of a secure life in the flesh. The tactic of leaders who lead people through the wide gate is an approach to grace with tolerance and broad-mindedness through which they try to combine the interests of their flesh with the interests of the spirit. As an adage says, so the sheep could be whole and the sheep could be filled. Unfortunately, this is impossible. Each of us know this because the flesh is a wolf. Our old nature, the flesh, is a wolf who feeds on and is satisfied not by grass, but by sheep. Pure thoughts, truth. The wolf wants to eat this truth so that it does not remain in you so that you can't trust in it so that you forget about it and say where is god i pray so many times where is he does not come for the sheep to be whole and filled the wolf in the face of our flesh must be killed if our goal is the life of our spirit and life in our spirit then we will use the spiritual principles of grace for the security and growth of our life in the spirit we're not going to preach about the evil ideas regarding uh, monetary prosperity. We find these two definitions stated in the epistle of Apostle Paul to the Church of God located in Galatia. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. When we preach about material prosperity, we are sowing in the flesh. 
All of this is the flesh. All of this is for the flesh. Prosperity is not for the spirit. If you would have talked about the prosperity of faith for the spirit, that's a different question. Then leave this and allow God to care for this. There is God's role and there is the role of man. The role of man is to search for the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God, or rather God. But the role of God and all of the rest will be added to you. I will care for this. Do not care for this. This is what I will care for. So the wide gate leading to destruction implies the gates of hell, personifying the Antichrist who acknowledges himself as Christ and acts as an angel of light. Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 through 19. God, through Jesus Christ, said to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on the earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The version of this verse uh, specifically sounds like this. You can only bind in the, the things on earth which at that point have already been bound in heaven, and you can loose on earth only that which at that point has already been loosed in heaven. For this, it's necessary to have a revelation in the Spirit in order to bind and loose. Without revelation in the Spirit, when a person, according to his own will, begins to forgive or to excommunicate, this is very dangerous. The broad path that leads to destruction are the correct slogans that each person is willed to understand. And the half-truth or the twisted truth depicted in the violent wine of fornication that a wife, sitting on a scarlet beast in the face of a false bride, has made all the nations drink. Half-truths and twisted truths. Slogans. We are saved. We are in Christ. We are strong. We have this. We will have this. We are going to be resurrected. And then it turns out that these people are going to even challenge God. They're going to say, Lord, how is this? But he's going to say, who are you? I never even knew you. And then you're going to say, how do you not know us? We taught in your name. We cast out demons in your name, and we lay down our lives for you. But you said you don't know us? You taught us in our streets. He's going to say, no, I don't know you. I did not teach on the streets. I have only one street along Jerusalem. You have chosen your own streets, your own teachers. Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon means the mixing of human with divine. These as when giants are born. Giant churches, so-called. Um, prosperity, success. Miracles and so forth. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the king of the earth, kings of the earth have committed immortality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from the heaven. Turns out that among her were the children of God. Um, oftentimes, when... A pastor leads his church out to some kind of meetings, to some kind of gatherings, in order to uphold some kind of political party. This is pure Babylon. Why do we need to mix one with the other? Political structures uh, continue to pray for them, but don't go out and uphold them through rallies. We're told to pray for kings, but not to go out to demonstrations. Not for kings and not against kings, but just to pray for those kings who have become kings already. And here it says, The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So there will come a time when God is going to judge all of these religious congregations. And in order to explore the core of the ancient paths of goodness outlined in the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, we will turn to the words of Apostle Paul written in Hebrews. 
I'm going to begin from chapter 5. Um, uh, chapters are and verses are so that it's easier for us to read, but when they did divide these uh, chapters and verses, sometimes they didn't realize that they were um, separating a certain thought by separating a chapter. Um, so we're going to start from chapter 5, chapter 1 through 14, and then chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Let's take a look at what we have. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant patience practice. I'm going to pause here. If an infant does not know the word of truth, he he's never going to enter to righteousness. But for him to become perfect, he must be taught so that he can discern. Furthermore, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God, and of instruction about baptisms or washings, the laying on of hands, two, the resurrection of dead, three, an eternal judgment, four. And this we will do if God permits. And now, further on, again, it's impossible who have those who have once been enlightened and who have eaten from the gifts of heaven, who have made partakers of the Holy Spirit and the powers of the future age, it's impossible to renew them again with repentance. Usually, this place of scripture is torn out and they're not explained what it means. It says, in the elementary doctrine of Christ, that do something to a person. What do they do? According to the meaning of this place in the Bible, we know that a person who has received a revelation about the ancient paths of goodness reflected in the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh and the subject of the elementary teaching of Christ first was enlightened by the light of truth. He tasted the heavenly gift of God. He became a partaker of the Holy Spirit. He tasted the good word of God and tasted the power of the future age. So in these four teachings, if we acknowledge them, we are going to be enlightened by the light of truth. We will taste the heavenly gift of God, become a partaker of the Holy Spirit, taste the good word of God, and taste the power of the future age. And if we acknowledge this, and if we then fall away, it's not going to be possible to then renew the repentance of these people. For this person, if he falls away, it's impossible to once again consider the foundation of freedom from evil deaths and faith in God. And consequently, it's impossible to renew his repentance. And so, the ancient path of goodness represented in the first fruit of the teaching of Christ is a statement of truth that grants a person understanding about what truth is and how to practice truth. And consequently, the elementary teaching of Christ is a kind of nourishment that is called to help a person leave infancy so that he can see, speak, and think like a man. Apostle Paul writes, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Basically, the ancient path of goodness represented in the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh is an ancient teaching of Judaism, unveiling the mystery of redemption, through which a person who is born by God becomes a partaker of God's essence. For if the first man, Adam, after his fall, the first watchman of the ancient path of goodness, would not have recognized that the covering of the fig leaves could not serve for him as salvation from death, and if he would not have accepted the works of God in the leather clothing of salvation that God made for him, he would have never been able to be born from God and would have never been the first watchman of the ancient path of goodness. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. In order to accept redemption, it's necessary to be born of God. If a person does not understand what redemption is, he can't be born of God. Adam had understood. 
what this was. It was explained to him, and he had agreed. He had taken off the fig leaves. He was, or he taken off his clothes. He was naked. He said, I am naked, and he was ashamed. And then his nakedness before it was covered. But in order to accept these garments, he first needed to uncover his sin to become naked and not to cover it and say, oh, there's nothing wrong with this sin. We are we are weak people and God is going to uh, God is going to forgive us either way. To be clothed in the leather clothing of salvation, Adam had to acknowledge that and accept that Jesus is Christ. In practice, the covering of fig leaves that he made could not have been his salvation. His salvation was the Son of God who was persecuted for his sins. He had understood that the animal that was killed symbolized Christ, and he was clothed in these leather garments of this animal for these sins. And in the Hebrew original, God had clothed him in garments. He had taken the skin off, and he had clothed him, and Adam was clothed in these garments that still had blood on them. He needed to show him what this redemption was about. And the teaching that Apostle Paul called the elementary doctrine of Christ, in fact, has its foundation and its origin in the lost and recovered heaven. Because to be redeemed is to be brought from captivity, or, or to be bought from captivity of sin and death, or to be brought back. Significantly, the word elementary in the Greek language contains an astonishing definition that the translator missed while translating this word that is important for us to grasp. Unfortunately, they had missed this definition of elementary. Elementary means the beginning, foundation, origin, authority, dominance, ruling, chief cornerstone, completion. This is what elementary means, elementary teachings of Christ. And so the phrase, leave the elementary doctrine to hurry to perfection, captures the imagination as it means, to leave the elementary doctrine means to be sprinkled with the beginning teachings, because elementary or is means beginning, to be immersed into the weapons of the guiding teaching, to be brought to amazement by the completion of this teaching, to be exalted by the dominion of the teaching over evil, through completion to be partakers of the Holy Spirit, through dominion know the powers of the future age, accept responsibility and the boundaries of the, of the authoritative teaching, and to receive resources for the building of ourselves into the image and likeness of God. Based on this definition, a version of this verse might look a little different. For example, Therefore, sprinkling yourself with the beginning teachings and immersing into the weapons of light located in the authority of the teaching, build yourself into a home of God, because it is impossible to build a foundation twice of repentance from dead works and faith in God, doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. The cornerstone teaching of Christ, or the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, is a foundation of the power of God, which at one end allows to turn and cleanse your conscience from dead works, and at the other hand, this teaching gives the opportunity to turn to faith in God, to trust in God. Because why are many saints in such a poor state? Because they don't trust in God. If they would have trusted in God fully until the end, under any circumstance, under any loss, they would not they would not be broken because they would trust in God and they trust because they don't have this rule of those who do not have this cornerstone teaching will fall and be broken. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer signify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spear offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? An infant, his conscience is not cleansed from dead works yet, and therefore he can't serve uh, the living and true God quite yet. Dead works is a virtue fulfilled not by faith that leads to love for God, but a virtue by which a person hopes to obtain fame and salvation that is given only as a gift of grace and redemption in Christ Jesus. 
Truly good works is a result of already obtained righteousness in which a person practices good deeds. If a person truly practices good deeds, this will be a result of righteousness. He won't earn anything. Therefore, doing good works, a person expresses his gratitude and love for God who rescued him from death already. Therefore, love for God is not defined by good emotions and intentions that a person feels, but by gratitude expressed in the fulfillment of his commandments which define the ancient path of goodness in the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. Apostle Paul says, If I gave away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. This is referring to love toward God. Because sometimes, sometimes a person likes dogs, cats, and... Um, some of them... They are so supportive of these cats and dogs, and for many with many surrounding churches, I had to go to court to say um, that I don't want any of them on my property. And they asked me, on what basis do you not want them on your property? What pieces of scripture? And like I told you, uh, the atheist who sat, who was a part of the jury, or rather the judge, who, who did not understand anything in scripture, I told I showed him several pieces of scripture that obviously had nothing in relation to these cats and dogs. Beware of dogs, be aware of evildoers. He says, oh, okay. And I, he says, we can't, we can't ruin their consciences. If for them, dogs symbolize evildoers, they, they, they can't. They, they shouldn't have them on their property. And I, I won the court battle this way. And they were, the surrounding churches and the surrounding neighbors, they were red from fury. And I know that these places of scripture that I talked about, they don't talk about literally cats and dogs, but I needed to show the judge something. Uh, the first time, one of the first times that we came um, to look at this property, there were um, there were dogs that had left their, their droppings. And I looked at this and I couldn't understand. This is the place of worship. I said, the son of the harlot and the dog cannot, cannot dwell here. And I brought up a few places of scripture about dogs. And I, I won the court battle because dogs or animals should not be on the property of the church. Returning to the information located in the outline of the elementary teaching of Jesus Christ, we note that it is made of four teachings. And uh, we're not going to call them the elementary teachings. They are elementary teachings because this is the beginning. But for us, elementary is something that's not quite fulfilling. Here we're talking about the beginning and the end, uh, the beginning and the end, the fulfillment. We're going to talk about the reigning teaching, the reigning teaching of Christ. We're not going to call it the elementary teachings of Christ, but the reigning teaching of Jesus Christ. Um, these four te teachings that come from one another are in one another, identify the authenticity of one another we're going to study. And these are the doctrine of baptisms, the doctrine of laying on of hands, the doctrine of resurrection from the dead, and the doctrine of eternal judgment. In the Bible, the image of the four teachings as the ancient paths of goodness are presented in four rivers, flowing out of Eden for the irrigation of the garden that represent the unique relationship of man and God. For these rivers, they had nourished and irrigated the garden where God spoke with man. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. This place of scripture truly shows that the origins of the ancient ways of the world, even today, are in the four rivers, flowing from Eden for the development of correct relations of man with God. The next image of the four teachings is presented in the four heavenly winds, acting in four directions, north, south, east, and west, for the protection of the interests of the category of people who are the carriers and watchmen of the ancient paths of goodness. Daniel chapter 7 verses 2 to 3. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. In scripture, these four teachings acting in the body of Christ are presented in the measurements width, length, depth, and height, which are called to give the partakers of the body of Christ the ability to comprehend the love of Christ so that we can be fulfilled with the fullness of God. 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Depth, He said to, to Abraham, go across the whole land, the breadth and the length and the height and width and the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Basically, the image of the four teachings, the ancient path of goodness, are presented in the fourth side of the temple, as well as all the products of the sanctuary containing rectangular or square forms. Each of these four teachings in the ancient path of goodness, as we will see further, contain triplicity, which sum up to twelve. With this, I would like to conclude the sermon today. I'm going to have one more sermon as a part of the introduction. This was the introduction. This is not an explanation yet of each teaching, but introduction. But the introduction is needed so that we know what this is, what the value of this is. How come we are so focused on it? And are these 12 teachings uh, truly the teaching of Jesus Christ? And we're going to see how all of Scripture is focused on these teachings. Scripture has interesting mathematical um, a mathematical table. And in this table, we're going to see that when he had, as soon as he created the earth and there were 12 hours of the day, we're going to see this order that we're going to see the 12 uh, stones, the 12 patriarchs, the 12 apostles, and all around scripture, we're going to see the number 12, 12, and 12. And everywhere God is going to show that those who have a partaking to this number 12, they're going to receive all of the um, all of the abundance of this teaching, and the rest will not. Therefore, it will be necessary for all of us to understand the essence that is contained in this mystery, in this mystery of godliness of the number 12. And now let us bend our knees and bow our heads, and we shall pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I thank you for the great mystery of the ancient path of goodness that you have called us to, and that you have allowed us to stand upon. Let all the saints be blessed who will hear this word, who will hear this sound, this call to the ancient path of goodness, and who are going to walk in it so that they have rest, for each of us wants to come to your rest. But you have said that for this we must be obedient. We must listen to those watchmen who preach the teaching of your kingdom. May your mercy be blessed. May the hearing of the people be opened. May their eyes be revealed so that they could see the wonders of your law, so that we could see in the shadows and images that this is the ancient path of goodness, that this teaching always existed. Therefore, it is called the ancient teaching. We thank you, Father, that we have this opportunity. Let all of the works of evil be destroyed. The organized powers of darkness, let it step away so that your saints could prepare their hearts to hearing this word so that they can be filled with this teaching and begin to live by it. For you have promised to those who are going to look into it, they're going to look into the perfect law of liberty. Because in this path of goodness, we see the perfect law of liberty, where we truly, finally will receive full freedom and full liberty from sin. We're going to receive authority over sin. We are going to cease to fall before it. And again and again, you are going to lift your righteous, who are going to fall by lifting them up again and again so they could continue to trust in your redemption. Teach us to reveal our sins and cover sins before you so that we could receive freedom from it, so that we could receive redemption, so that we can be clothed in your redemption. Let your peace be blessed, your Sabbath among your people. I believe that before, according to your word, before you are going to rapture the bride, she is going to be found in rest. 
She's going to accept this rest. And therefore, you are going to rapture only those people who will acknowledge your path, who will acknowledge your truth, and who are going to be obedient to it. May the Lord bless our listening and our obedience. May he uncover our mind and may he let us acknowledge it in all its fullness. We bow down before you, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the hand of the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen. And now, all of us together, let us proclaim our unchanging manifestation. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. <laughs> 